28 starts on page 508. I always tell you what page we're on. A follow by the book, a follow by the slides, so you won't be confused. Like, I don't know where she is. Oh, she's all over the place, or whatever, whatever. But I try to keep in order so you can, because I, I like to be organized, and I want you all to learn your organization skills, because you're going to need to be organized as a nurse. Because you all will go on eventually become registered nurses. Some of you may go on to become a nurse practitioner, okay? And one of the things with this is organization. I suggest, I told my clinical group, what you need to do is get you one of those big old desktop calendars, <coughs> tape it to your wall, and say, okay, I've got ATI due Monday at this time, so it's due Sunday, okay? Get everything due, turn it in in time, because I found that the biggest problem here is people don't turn in their work on time. You do not need to be losing any points because you did not turn something in on time. Okay? Um, I have a question about that. One of our ATIs that's due tonight, it's one that we did last quarter. I'd have to talk to Professor Fox about that. Um, so she set the course up. Yeah, yeah, she had, Samantha had emailed her and she said to, it's the same one we did last quarter, we just need to retake the test and upload it. That's it. Okay. All right. So if it's a test to retake, you should be familiar with the material, so you should get 100% on it, okay? But the only problem with that is it was due last night. No, it was due at 11.59 a.m. This morning. Oh, this morning. So if some of them didn't know that they just needed to do it. But did it say to do it? Yes. No. No, it had a completely different name on there for us to do, so we couldn't even find it. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, and so my oxygen is the first one. What's the what's the topic? It's the it's supposed to be the dwelling catheter okay, insertion, okay, you're but in okay. the ATI, it's the catheter care is what it's under. Okay, so I'll look at it when I grade it. I've graded some people uh, already. You've already seen me grade. I usually try to grade. I haven't looked at it today, but I usually try to grade. All right, so we got two chapters to cover tonight, and then we'll do our lab. But so we'll, I'll kind of go through this. Just let me know if I'm going too fast, okay? We're talking about respiratory. Remember, I said the first nine or so slides are going to be a little pathos. So you're like, oh god, okay. Uh, so we're doing our theory overview about uh, the respiratory system functions, hypoxia. Uh, other procedures to follow in the event of respiratory or cardiac arrest. So some of the structures and the function of our respiratory system. I always think about the respiratory system like broccoli. You know how broccoli looks? Mm -hmm. Okay, I always think about it like that. But with your um, respiratory uh, <coughs> system, and I, I, let me apologize ahead of time, I'm just now getting over the flu a week. Out. So I've got that little cough too, and I hear other people coughing as well. So um, let's just try to cover our cough. I try to cover it with my elbow, but it's gonna be hard um, talking and um, trying to lecture at the same time. But um, so our respiratory system includes our nose, our mouth, pharynx, trachea, and the upper airway. That's why when you go to the doctor, you go to an ear, eyes, nose, and throat doctor. The trachea is divided into the right and the left main stem of the bronchi. The lungs, the lungs have two lobes. The left has two 
I mean, two areas. The left has two lobes, and the right has three, okay? So when you're doing your listening, when you're listening to someone's lungs, and if you hear crackles, which is like, sounds like snap, crackle, and pop of Rice Krispies, you probably want to listen in the right middle lobe, right into the side. Because on x-ray, that's what's going to show up. The pneumonia is going to show up in the right middle lobe. Okay, usually if any consolidation shows up in the x-ray on uh, upper, it's usually TB, okay? But the right uh, lung has three lobes. Each lobe of the lung has a bronchi that's divided into bronchioles. And the bronchioles itself divide into alveoli. And all of this is shared also with the digestive system. And this is an image on page 509 of the respiratory system. If you'll see the pharynx is, is you know, uh, the first part. And you see how they branch down. And the picture uh, right here branches off and it shows you these are the alveoli. Okay? Y'all clear? Okay. So, some of the structures and functions of the respiratory system. So, the alveoli are lined with these mucous membranes, and they function to exchange air. Your diaphragm is beneath your lungs. Contraction of the diaphragm enlarges your thoracic cavity, and that's called an inspiration. Breathing in, inspiration. So the relaxation of that diaphragm causes the thoracic cavity to become smaller, to become smaller, and this is called expiration. So inspiration, expiration. There are between 1 billion, 300 million alveoli in your lungs, okay? And the respiratory muscles depend on your nerve impulses from your spinal cord. Some more functions, the chest muscles or the intercostal muscles are combined with your diaphragmic, uh, diaphragm and this movement aids in inspiration and expiration. That's why when we get into part, when they ask you to auscultate with your stethoscope, the second intercostal space. That's what talk. That's what they're talking about. You've got a rib space, a rib space, a rib space. The space is the muscle. Okay, and you're auscultating the muscle you're listening to with your stethoscope. That's what that is. Respiratory muscles depend on your nerve impulses from your spinal cord. So if a person has a spinal cord injury, then they're uh, deficient on some of the respiratory functions. Your thoracic cage allows respiratory muscles to function correctly. So if you have any muscle or nerve damage to your chest, it restricts your movement and exchange of air into and out of 
if you've got injury. Right? Make sense? Some more functions of your respiratory. Um, your upper airway carries air to and from the lungs. Humidification takes place in your upper airway of the lungs. Your bronchi, the bronchi channel air to and from the lungs. And the cilia lining, mucous membranes, they help trap. They also remove foreign particles, particles in your respiratory tract via a cough. So uh, these cilia are like little hair-like um, structures in your nose. You have them in your nose. And the air passages that have an upward movement, they have an upward moving motion. They assist with the removal of particles. And during normal breathing, 500 mils of air moves in and out of your lungs. During normal breathing, you may want to know this, um, about 500 mils of air moves in and out of your lungs. We're on page seven of that though. We're almost there. Take a deep breath. You doing okay? Does this, is anything over your head like this is too much? Y'all okay? Feedback? Yes, ma'am. You okay? All right. Keep going. Uh, air becomes warm and moist as it passes through the organs of the upper respiratory tract. Oxygen, therefore, if you have to have oxygen, it does dry you out, okay? That's why they usually, usually have to uh, uh, put a humidifier with it. So some more functions. The alveoli contain macrophages that phagocytize inhaled bacteria. So the macrophages are like little Pac-Mans, they eat up the bad stuff, okay? Mucus and cilia propel foreign substance to airway openings to be expelled. Your central nervous system controls your rate and your rhythm. So that's why when you got something going on with your central nervous system, either be it injury or you've had some medication, that's why you're either going to be breathing too slow or breathing too fast, right? Because it controls it. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. Chemoreceptors in the aorta and carotid bodies send signals to the brainstem. system is one of the body's strongest defense. Okay? Some more functions. We're on page nine. Are we still okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, chemoreceptors measure your serum, pH, your carbon dioxide levels, your serum O2 levels or oxygen levels to trigger changes in your uh, rate and the depth of your respiration. Oxygen itself diffuses across the alveolar membranes into the blood and carbon dioxide diffuses across the alveolar membranes 
out of the blood into the lungs for exhalation. So the respiratory process itself is complex, and is, but it is essential for life. Interruption in any of these vital functions of the lungs and in the cell results in the death of tissues or organs. So now, what actually happened when there's uh, uh, the factor of age, okay? These are the changes that occur when the person is older or in our older population. There's usually a decrease in everything, okay? Decrease in elasticity of the, th uh, the thorax and their respiratory muscles. Some of your little elderly patients have kyphosis. <coughs> you know, you can already tell that's pushing on the diaphragm. That's gonna be hard for them to breathe, okay? They have a decrease in total body water. They have drier mucous membranes. You can look at their little skin tube and you can pinch it and they, it sticks. They have a, lag, a loss of elastic <coughs> recoil during um, exhalation. That's when you breathe in and, you, and the chest rises and falls up and down. So they have a decrease in that up and down recoil, okay? They also have thickening of the alveolar membranes, which has less uh, efficient gas exchange, which is what you need. And then they have less uh, respiratory reserve. The elderly are more vulnerable to acute infections um, in the respiratory tra tract, such as a colds, pneumonia, and influenza. So that's why they always want them to get their flu shot. Even though, though, if you can get your flu shot, that does not mean that you will not get the flu, okay? But it just helps your immune response. After age 70 years uh, of age, there is a 50% decrease in elasticity of their thorax. And the respiratory tissues, because of the total body water, decreases 50% percent uh, uh, is effective. <laughs> There's also an increase of chronic lung diseases with our elderly population, including emphysema, pleurisy, and or cancer. So hypoxemia, anything that's hypo is what? Low, you remember that hypo, oh, is low, okay. Anemia is in the blood. You know, anemia, okay? So if you see hypoxemia, what is that? No oxygen, so you got your ox. Ox, which is for your oxygen. Can y'all see me doing that? Okay, so hypoxemia. So that's a decreased amount of oxygen in the blood. It results in a decrease of oxygen uh, at your cellular level, which is called hypoxia, okay? <laughs> you may need to know that. <coughs> also results in an increased level of carbon dioxide called hypercapnia. So anything hyper is what? Right. It's too much, okay? So hypercapnia is too much carbon dioxide. The onset could be rapid and obvious or insidious uh, and gradual. 
and I'm on page 510. If anyone is highlighting the book, that's where that is, talking about hypoxemia. Make sure that you are familiar with tables 28.1, some of the common causes of it. So anytime there's a sudden onset of hypoxia, the person, you know how they're going to look? They're going to have difficulty breathing. Okay? That's how they're going to look. Uh, obstruction of the airway. Uh, there are several causes. Hypoxia itself is a deficient amount of O2 that's actually reach, reaching the tissues. Okay? You can have an occlusion by the tongue or mucus secretions. Your tongue is resting back because of the position you're in. You can have the inflammation from crew, asthma, bronchitis, laryngitis. Uh, occlusion for, for, uh, from a foreign body. Chemical or heart, uh, heat burns with inflammation. COPD causing your airway to collapse. Or near drowning, an occlusion of water. So some of the restrictions of the uh, thoracic cage uh, could come from uh, abdominal injury, chest injury, or flail chest, which is a life-threatening condition. Um, usually, uh, there's a break from, uh, from, a, from trauma, and it becomes detached from the actual chest wall. That's what a flail uh, chest is. Or they could have a pneumothorax, and that's where um, there's presence of air or gas that has actually gotten into the uh, cavity between the lungs and the chest wall. That's what a pneumothorax is. Um, also, um, extreme obesity, uh, and it's act it actually restricts your uh, thoracic movement. That's what obesity does. Then hypoxia continue, you have decreased neuromuscular function. And that could be from uh, a depression in your central nervous system from drugs, sedatives, uh, anesthesia, analgesics, if you have a brain uh, injury, uh, if you have a stroke or CBA from coma, uh, or from a disease, from uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, myasthenia gravitas, uh, Guillain Barre, uh, ALS. So some of these things will, uh, and these are neuromuscular function uh, disorders that can make you have hypoxia. Also, some disturbances in uh, diffusion of gases. Uh, from a disease like uh, emphysema, and uh, the air sacs in the lungs are damaged and they are enlarged with emphysema, okay? Uh, from trauma, from uh, pulmonary embolus, tumors, respiratory distress syndrome, or from high altitude. Without immediate attention with the patient that's having hypoxemia, 
um, they will be in trouble. So how does the patient look if they have hypoxemia? We're doing pretty good. I'm on slide 15 to 47, and we've just been lecturing for about 20 minutes. Okay? Y'all okay? Mm -hmm. So how does the patient look? This is a, they want to know signs and symptoms. Well, I want to know how they look if they've got this. They are restless. They're irritable. They're confused. They may have difficulty breathing, which is dyspnea. Remember, this is dysfunctional family. How many of y'all know dysfunction? Uh, so you'll know that's difficulty. Anytime they have dyspnea, they're having difficulty breathing. They have rapid breathing, uh, which is dyspnea uh, or strider. And strider is when they have a high pitch sound when they breathe. It is a harsh, uh, 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 I can get descriptive too, okay? Right. Cyanosis, do you want your patient to be cyanotic when you see them? What does that mean? Blue, all right? Uh, if they are blue, uh, in the central area of blueness is your lips. Central, central lips, peripheral, that's far away right here. In your peripheries, that's blue fingernails, blue toenails. You don't want them to have that, right? You know what? They've got hypoxia. Something's wrong. All right. And a decreased oxygen saturation. If you put that O2 uh, uh, set a uh, monitor on them, pulse oximeter on them, and they have a decreased O2 sat, then um, <coughs> you have a decrease uh, in saturation or something. Uh, your pulse oximeter. And it is used to monitor any patient at risk for hypoxia, measures the changes in the serum, serum oxygen uh, continuously. Uh, the sensor can be put on your fingers, toes, ears, or skin. It helps track changes in your uh, oxygen therapy. So if a person is uh, on oxygen, you really want to know their O2 sats, okay? Uh, the oximetry itself is the photoreaction of oxygen in the bloodstream and in your capillaries in your blood. It's painless and it's non-invasive and it's a monitor and it just monitors uh, their levels. And this is an image on page 513 of a, a nurse putting pulse socks on someone's finger. So let's talk a little bit about airway obstruction and respiratory arrest. Some of the common airway obstructions is choking, obstruction by the tongue of foreign bodies or food. You may want to know that. Some of the common airway obstructions is usually from choking. Uh, abdominal thrust, which is a part of the Heimlich maneuvers used to actually clear that foreign object. Another way of uh, airway obstruction <coughs> is respiratory uh, secretions, either complete or partially obstruction, obstructed. Uh, if uh, they have a disease state of pneumonia or COPD, 
And it usually can be cleared by coughing or suctioning or postural drainage, and that's with gravity. Okay? And this is the universal choking sign. If somebody's choking, they'll usually do this. You ask them what a choke me But they usually can't say anything. If a person's doing that, you want to do the harm do wrong. If you do do the homic maneuver on someone that's choking and they go unconscious on you, then you have to do CPR on them. You don't do a blind sweep. Years ago, we used to teach the blind sweep. You don't do that. When you actually compress on their sternum and their chest, it's just like an artificial cough, and it will dislodge that uh, uh, object that's in their throat. And if you see it, you can get it out, but don't go sweeping for something you can't see, but you'll just lodge it further down, okay? So clearing respiratory secretions, the effective cough is most efficient if you're in the sitting position. Two deep breaths and then inhale deeply again. Breathe rapidly and forcefully, exhales as quickly as possible with the mouth open. And this moves secretions of the bronchial tree. Um, repeated forceful exhalation brings secretions up to where they can be more easily coughed up. And I have seen it where people couldn't do the Heimlich maneuver on themselves, so they would get on a chair and, and try to do, you know, cough that way to get the object out. Postural drainage is uh, different positions that drain different segments of the lungs. Specific segments are drained into the bronchial to facilitate coughing. And um, each position is assumed for five to 15 minutes, two to four times a day is tolerated. Or the person may have to have percussion uh, and that's where they cup their hand and, and they do rhythm um, percussions on their back to help uh, facilitate moving of mucus in the lungs. And then there's, if you look on page 519, there's some postural drainage positions that they show on page 519. So you may want to be familiar with those. <coughs> FYI, not for text, but FYI. There's no images on the exam. So, question one, the most common cause of respiratory insufficiency <coughs> What? Obstruction of airway. Everybody agree? Mm -hmm. What is it? What's the number? Three. Three. That's exactly right. Bruce's patient is showing early signs of hypoxia. Which of the following signs is not an early sign of hypoxia? Not an early sign. Four. Right. That's a late sign, right? Mm -hmm. 
on their side nodded. All right? Remember, they be restless, a little confused, and the patient may sit up, you know, when they can't seem like they can get their breath. But that's a synopsis of that All right, we're doing good. Any other questions? Well, everything clear as mud? Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about oxygen delivery overview. And in theory, we're going to uh, describe the various methods used for oxygen delivery, uh, safety precautions, and then clinical practice how to regulate oxygen flow. Oxygen administration, oxygen itself is a prescription. You may need to know that. You just can't put oxygen on a person. Usually, most facilities have a standing order. Do y'all know what I mean when I say standing order? Uh, yes. So most facilities have a standing order for oxygen to meters. Okay? You don't have to try to get a doctor's order to, to put oxygen on somebody. Um, but it's... Um, you do need an order for it. Either it's a standing order or an order, okay? But it's um, colorless, tasteless, odorless gas present in the air. Um, even though it's essential for life, it does have its disadvantages. Uh, high concentrations of oxygen can cause fires. It's very drying to your uh, nares and your nose. The equipment needed for oxygen therapy, you have to have your oxygen source, your flow meter, um, a humidifier, the tubing, the appropriate appliance for the uh, method order. Some people, uh, you know, they have, you'll have a nasal cannula, but if you're a mouth breather, you, mouth breather, you will probably need a mask. A lot of people don't like the mask because it makes them feel like they're smug, claustrophobic, okay? And it'll say that here a little later. So oxygen is combustible, combustible, um, not flammable, which means it's able to catch fire and burn easily. And then this is an image on page 521 of an oxygen flow meter and humidifier setup. Oxygen administration continued is used to uh, supplement oxygen in inspired air. Inspired air is about 21% oxygen. That's oxygen that we take in. In can be delivered by the nasal cannula, a mask, a tin, a crew bed, or a catheter. Of course, it requires humidification. Flow rate is prescribed by the doctor. Uh, the common flow rates are four to six liters per uh, minute. But COPD patients are given uh, only two to three liters per minute. You may want to know that uh, because it causes them to have too much CO2 in their uh, blood. Oxygen administration with a cannula. 
A cannula is a it's a plastic tube with the short curved prongs that go on the ear uh, that extend into the nostrils about one fourth to a half inch. Uh, and it's held in place by looping looping it. Uh, you can also put uh, little pads on top of the earlobes section if it becomes irritating. And this is an image on page 522 of a lady that has oxygen. She has a portable oxygen tank with her nasal cannula. And these are all the different types of, of oxygen masks that you can use or oxygen uh, delivery devices. Uh, figure 28.9. So with the mask, there's various types that are available. Um, and the administration is in concentration ranging from 24 to 54, 55% at the flow rates of three and seven. Oxygen concentrations above 60% are rarely given. And oxygen itself with a mask, this is a good treatment for patients with less than the desired O2 sats on a nasal cannula because they may be mouth breathers. Or what if they have a septal defect in their nose, okay? They've had surgery or they, they've had uh, some problems, sinusitis or you know, they have some kind of um, uh, uh, anomaly with their nose. So. Um, the nasal cannula might not be a good um, oxygen device choice for that patient. They may have to have a mask because their sats are too low. Um, so masks, they provide a more constant level of oxygen and they help to control the carbon dioxide retention as well as supply the patient with the O2 that they really need, okay? Uh, you can refer to page 523 uh, regarding the advantages and the disadvantages of common O2 administration uh, devices. And that is that uh, big chart right there on page 523. Oxygen administration, artificial airways, there's several purposes. They relieve an obstruction, protect the airway, facilitate suctioning, and provide artificial ventilation. Nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal airways, they keep the tongue from falling back into the throat, especially if a person is on a vent or comatose. Endotracheal tubes maintain an airway in those who are unconscious or unable to ventilate on their own. An endotracheal tube uh, may cause a mucosal ulcer uh, after five to seven days of use. So depending on the cuff uh, presence in that uh, tube when they inflate the cuff or whatever type of cuff, type of cuff it is. So the tube itself is uh, re uh, generally removed about 48 to 72 hours. 
but it could be left in longer, depending on uh, what the order is. And these are some images on page 524 of the different types of airways. And these are usually a frequently required uh, post-operative patients and they uh, have to be uh, recovered, uh, when they have to recover from anesthesia, they'll have this type of airway they go to. So with nasopharyngeal suctioning, it, re it was required for patients unable to clear the secretions on their own effectively. You could either have a nasopharyngeal suction or oral suction. Your oral suction is usually with your yonker and then uh, your nasopharyngeal will be with the tubing. Uh, when you do do your suctioning, you do uh, you don't suction no more than 10 to 15 seconds, and then you give the person a chance to rest and give them about a minute before you suction them a little bit more, especially if they still, their lungs still uh, sound uh, like they are a little occluded. They may have some type of drainage in the maybe suction. Uh, it can be performed with a Yonker suction tip or with a 15 to 16 French suction catheter that's usually attached to the wall. The negative pressure setting on the suction um, canister needs to be between set between 80 and 120 um, um, millimeters or micromillimeters. And you probably need to know that between negative, uh, I mean between the negative pressure setting of 80 to 120, and that's your suction pressure. The suction uh, catheters itself will be selected based on the size of the patient and the thickness of their secretion. So there that is again, you want, with your nasopharyngeal suction, you want to maintain a patent airway by removing the uh, accumulated secretions. It involves the upper passages of the nose, the mouth, and the pharynx. Use adopted in infants, uh, gravely debilitated or unconscious patients, and those who have an ineffective cough. And there it is again, that suction pressure setting of 80 to 120. Tracheal bronchial suctioning. It is deep suctioning to remove secretions from the trachea and the bronchi using a sterile technique, okay? Now with the yonker, it's not sterile, but with um, uh, when you do your tracheal uh, suctioning, it is sterile. It's a sterile technique. You'll need to know that. Most often performed on intubated patients or patients with tracheostomies. 
the patients need the patient needs to be uh, pre-oxygenated at least get their O2 levels up they'll give them a boost of oxygen for and again sterile technique is mandatory <coughs> Trait care itself is usually performed every eight hours. Okay? You'll need to know that. The ties themselves on the trait um, device are being replaced when they're sold or at least daily, not weekly, daily. Uh, should be performed no longer than 10 seconds at a time with oxygenation in between. This is the most frequently performed, uh, this is most frequently performed when a patient has been intubated or has a tracheostomy, which is, you know, a tracheostomy is the opening within the tracheal area. And then sometimes you may have to do it on that as needed basis. So question three, Lisa's patient has an order for nasopharyngeal suction. Which one is not true regarding nasopharyngeal suction? Number two. Number two. Yeah. Right. So what, what, what's, what, what's the deal with one? You have to do that. That's why you suctioning them, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a trick answer. I'm just asking you to tell me why. You know that's not the answer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what about number three? It's supposed to be sterile. Yeah. Okay, and what about number four? <coughs> you can use it again. So a catheter that is, has been used in the mouth is not used. Not used. That is, that's right, that's true. <coughs> so what makes number two wrong? It's supposed to be 80 That's exactly right. So y'all know that answer, right? Yeah. So you got that test question right, you know it. All right. Um, Lisa's, uh, Linda's patient has a tracheostomy, which is true regarding tracheostomy care. Four. Exactly right. Everybody see that? You agree? Mm -hmm. Question five, Linda's uh, patient cannot maintain a sufficient amount of oxygen in his body. Linda must administer oxygen to her patient. Oxygen should be administered by? Four. One. one. Who says one? Watch that word only. That's what makes it wrong. Watch that word only when you take your test. It says oxygen should be administered by mass, cannula, tin, or catheter only. That's not incorrect. That's not correct. The answer is four. Oxygen should be administered by humidified apparatus to prevent drying to the mucosa. Because remember, oxygen can be either delivered by a mast, a cannula, a tent, 
a catheter, a pool bed, a ventilator, uh-huh, right? Watch the worst only. You can eliminate. One of the biggest things about taking exams, if you can eliminate two of them, that'll keep you from sweating over four. Right? So I would rather be trying to figure out two versus which four of them to be. So learn how to eliminate. Okay. All right, we're almost done. Let's talk a little bit about everybody, okay? Everything clear as mud? Okay. So the care of the patient receiving oxygen, or um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, person with tracheostomy or just tube and drainage system. So tracheostomy, um, when the tracheostomy is cuffed, it is inflated to seal the space between the tube and the tracheal wall. This helps to prevent fluid from being um, aspirated into the lungs. Tracheostomy itself is a surgical procedure um, um, and the surgical opening is into the trachea to facilitate the insertion of a cuffed trach uh, tube. It maintains a patent airway, facilitates suctioning and mechanical ventilation, and it may be temporary or permanent. You may need to know that. Tracheostomy may be temporary or permanent. Never leave the patient alone when the cuff is deflated due to the danger of aspiration. What is aspiration? It's fluid in their lungs. Okay, never leave them alone. Chest, uh, chest drainage, drainage tubes they're used to remove air from a patient with a pneumothorax. And remember, a pneumothorax is air or gas in the space. It's connected to a drainage device that allows air drainage to escape and not enter the actual lung cavity. It may require suction to operate or it may just be used with your gravity drainage. Tubes are removed and an occlusive dressing is applied when the air is removed from the pleural space. And this is an image on page 529 of a disposal chest drainage unit. on page 531, and this is a homelic chest drainage valve. We call it a chest drainage uh, flutter valve, is what it's called. And this is uh, a valve that allows uh, the, uh, the escaping of air, but prevents it from re-entering uh, back in the plural space. And that's on page 531. So what are some of the nurses' roles in the airway support? 
okay? But well, we always want to maintain a patent airway and make sure that the patient um, doesn't have the allow secretions, make sure there's nothing occluding uh, their airway. We want to make sure that our patients should uh, uh, turn uh, every two hours and encourage them to turn, uh, cough and deep breathe. They've had a surgery, it may need to be splinted with a pillow to prevent any dehiscence or evisceration of their um, surgical sites. So you may want to splint that with a pillow. For unconscious patients, you want to use an oral or nasal airway to keep the tongue from obstructing the airway and encourage the use of an incentive spirometer. Uh, you as a nurse, it's, it's just imperative that you uh, teach your team members, for, especially for your patients that are nonverbal and uh, they have a peripheral uh, artery uh, problems with their extremities to make sure they are turned, keep their heels off the bed, um, make sure that their uh, uh, knees are padded, you don't want any uh, pressure ulcers. And then you want to make sure to keep their lungs healthy, okay? Because they are uh, uh, immobile, and they have they can get in trouble real quick, you know, in a lot of areas. And with your encouragement of your incentives parameters, how much air you get out? Now, how much you can suck in, but how much you can get out, okay? And this is an image on page 533 of an, uh, um, someone teaching it. He could be a doctor, he could be a respiratory therapist, but he's just teaching the patient how to split their incision while they're coughing. And then this is the same person showing them how to uh, use an incentive parameter. These are some of the nursing diagnoses you would use if a person has a respiratory uh, uh, disorder, ineffective airway clearance related to weakness, uh, impaired gas exchange, risk for infection because they have a trach. You know, especially with your technique, you may break sterile uh deficient knowledge related to the use of oxygen equipment. I've seen people with cigarettes and they have oxygen. A uh, risk for injury related to improper safety precautions, and that's one of the things that, that's what that would mean. <coughs> Any questions? Okay, we're at the end of that, and we did pretty good, didn't we? So let's take a break, about a 10-minute break. Our exam will cover respiratory, it will cover urinary, it will cover bowel elimination, and pain. Do you know what pain, pain comfort, and sleep. And it is February the 10th. So right after next Monday, I'm gonna shoot you the study guide. Cause I want all B's and up. I'd rather have all A's 
but you know, I want everybody to do well, but I really want you to know what um, the material, I want you to be able to uh, apply this as a nurse, okay?
and then the bladder takes it through the urethra. Okay, and that's where it goes to your and you pee it out. So after your kidneys is your ureters, and these are those hollow tubes that carry urine from the kidneys to the bladder. Your bladder, your ureters, and then, um, I mean your kidneys, your ureters, to your bladder, okay? Kidneys, to your ureters, to the bladder. The bladder is a hollow muscular organ located in the lower pelvis that stores the urine. And your urethra carries the urine from the bladder to the meatus. The flow is controlled by a, a urinary sphincter, and your meatus conducts uh, urine to, out, to outside of the body. The bladder itself, the bladder itself is a sterile area. And it's also uh, vulnerable to uh, infection. It can hold up to 1,000 to 1,800 mils of urine. And the average output for uh, a uh, person is between 1,000 to 1,500 meals a day. The location of the bladder itself is behind the pubic bone. And then here is another uh, image on page 542. And it has that same order. Kidneys, ureter, bladder, urethra, okay? That's part of And this is a um, image of a male track uh, of the, um, where their urethra is. And if you notice, under their bladder, they have the prostate. <clears throat> That's why when a person, when a male has prostate cancer, they may have a, one of the signs, they may have a little drip. And that drip is not voluntarily, it's involuntary. They, they, they can't control that drip, okay? And with the male, if you notice their uh, uh, urethra is a little longer. So uh, when you put a catheter in the male, you have to go about a couple inches uh, more when you do get urine after you, when you insert it, then you're gonna go a couple inches more just to make sure you're in the right location, okay? Before you put the balloon. <coughs> so some of the functions of the urinary system, the kidneys itself, and I'm on page 542, functions of the urinary structure. Kidneys, they filter blood through the nephrons. What did I say the nephrons were? Yeah, they get it done, right? So that's where uh, this filter is through the nephrons. Metabolic waste and excess water are extracted here. 
Kidneys regulate electrolytes by excreting excess amounts and help to with your acid-base balances, your hydrogen ions and your bicarbonate. Tubules in themselves secrete, excrete, or reabsorb electrolytes, water, and other substances. When you realize, when you start doing your EHR medication list, this one, they're going to want to know where everything is excreted. Most of it is going to be in the kidneys. Most of it is going to be metabolized in the liver. Okay? Uh, the kidney function promotes circulation through renal arteries and renal veins. And your kidneys receive 20 to 25 percent of your uh, circulating blood supply in your body, okay? That's why when you have people that have diabetes or they have um, heart problems, one of the things that, uh, that, that usually goes first is their kidneys. They end up on um, dialysis because the, the, kid, the arteries and the veins in the kidneys are much smaller and they get damaged quicker. The nephron is composed of three parts itself. It's called a proximal tubule, the loop of Henley, and the distal tubule. All of these, of these produce hormones. And it also has the renin-angiotensin renin hormone, um, which uh, is regulated through your ACE inhibitors. Kidneys themselves are involved in the, in the renin production that has to do with the fluctuations, the uh, ups and downs of your blood pressure. If a person has a full bladder and you take their blood pressure, it's probably going to be up. When, as soon as they excrete and they, they use the bathroom, their blood pressure will go down. And um, the filtration is also collected into the distal tubes, and this is what uh, produces urine. So some more functions uh, that continue. The, kid the kidneys themselves manufacture approximately 1.5 liters of urine in a 24-hour period. Uh, urine output uh, for an adult <coughs> is normally 30 to 70 mils per hour, but we need 30 mils an hour, and that's the minimum, okay? You may need to know that. So your ureters, you know, we got your kidneys and you got your ureters. Your ureters carry uh, urine from the kidneys to the bladder. Bladder uh, stores urine and signals when it is full. Then the bladder empties uh, uh, when 250 to 400 mils of urine is present. And that's under a voluntary control, not unless you have a medical condition and you have any control, then those are other issues. 
that you'll probably discuss in mid-surge. We're just talking about the norms, right? Fundamentals, right? Uh, if it's less than 30 meals of urine per hour, the patient may be experiencing a decreased tissue perfusion and or decreased cardiac output, so then they'll have a decreasing urine. which is urinating reflex. And the external sphincter is under voluntary control. At least 600 mils of urine must be excreted per day to remove waste products. Now sometimes if a person has a decrease in kidney uh, uh, function, you know, with dialysis, a person has three things they uh, get done with the artificial kidney what the kidneys can do themselves. But sometimes they may be excreting urine, but it's not getting all the waste out. All right? I don't want to give you too much at one time. You'll learn this stuff in mid-surge. But they could be urinating, but it's not cleaning all the waste out. That's why when you do their uh, uh, BUN and creatinine levels, they're off. Because the creatinine is the, back, you know, the byproduct of that, and it's not really getting rid of it. Okay? Even though they've got urine coming out, it's not cleaning the waste, okay? And the electrolytes may be off, okay? Or their blood counts can be um, too low. You know, it filters 20 to 25% of your blood supply for your whole body. And your kidneys help produce what they call erythropoiesis, which helps to make red blood cells. So when you have a decrease in kidney function, you've got a whole lot of other things going, okay? A consumption of alcohol can increase um, your urine output. And like I said earlier, diabetes affects the function of the kidneys. These are, this is a neurological change. If there is a spinal cord or pelvic um, nerve damage, the voluntarily, voluntarily uh, bladder control will be um, impaired. And the bladder itself may become distended. And then you have a cat, a straight cat, right? Uh, some blockages uh, of the ureters, and I'm on page 543. <laughs> and 
these are the factors that interfere with urinary elimination. Blockage of the ureters, either from uh, kidney stones, um, tumors in the abdominal cavity, trauma to the uh, stomach, disruption of the bladder by tumor or trauma, enlarged prostate, trauma to the urethra, infection, or neurological damage. Tennessee itself is called the high um, stone age state due to all of the calcium that we have in our water. So we have a high, high levels of kidney stones in Tennessee because we have a lot of calcium in our water. So nose, you need to know some of the signs. And anesthesia in males over 60 years of age have a problem with the prostates of being enlarged from anesthesia. If a male has to be, uh, have, has to have surgery and have anesthesia, they can have complications with the prostate. If a person has stones, kidney stones, they may uh, complain of pain in their back, the belly or the side, burning, urgency, blood in their urine, or cloudy or smelly urine. If there's tumors, it could uh, they could have blood in their urine as well, or low back pain. Uh, there's an uh, enlarged prostate, they could have a weak stream, or they may have difficulty starting the stream if they have an enlarged prostate. Or they could have that drip that I was telling you about, or a leak. Infection of the uh, urinary system, pain, discomfort, burning, uh, when they try to urinate. And if a person has brain injury, they may have a urinary or kidney dysfunction. So what are the changes that occur with aging? It's still on page 543. There's a decrease, remember I said it's a decrease in everything? When a person's, uh, uh, with the elderly, there's a decrease in the number of the functions of the nephrons, which is the working part of the kidney. There's a decrease in filtration rate of all the uremia in the um, in your um, blood. There's a decreased bladder tone, and that's why they have nocturia, which is a bed wetting. Or not, not, not using bathroom more at night. Decreased bladder emptying, increased residual, enlarging of the prostate, urethral obstruction, stones, or incontinence uh, sometimes, but it's not a normal part of aging. Okay? If they have incontinence, People say, oh, well, you know, they got, they use the bathroom and say, well, that just happens with age. Well, they're not supposed to. Okay? <coughs> so 
your normal urine up. Elimination. Infants void five to 40 times uh, a day, per day. Preschool children may void every two hours, and sometimes you may have to put um, preschoolers on bladder training, especially when they have a problem with uh, wetting their pants. Adults usually void five to 10 times per day. Males void 300 to 500 meals. Females void 250 meals. The average output though should be approximately 30 meals per hour. Babies void more frequently because uh, they um, have neurological and muscle development factors, so they use the bathroom more. They haven't been developed yet. And uh, voiding pa uh, patterns are, uh, are a challenge for our preschoolers uh, because of the activities during the day and, you know, school and lunch and recess. And if they forget, they that what causes them. They don't have the time or they forget to go every two hours. <coughs> so some of the factors that are, that, um, that hinder or affect normal urination, you've got neurological or muscle development problems, alterations in your spinal cord integrity, fluid volume intake. If you don't drink enough fluid, you're not gonna be able to urinate. Drinking up water, uh, fluid loss in perspiration, vomiting, diarrhea, ADH uh, secreted by the pituitary. And ADH responds to changes in the fluid osmolarity in your blood. Um, the ADH itself determines how much the tubules reabsorb or how much they uh, discard. So if you have fluid intake by mouth or either, either IV, um, if it's decreased or it's lost through vomiting or diarrhea, um, ADH uh, is released to increase the absorption of the water. <coughs> if fluid intake is increased, ADH is suppressed, and which is allow more urine formation diuresis. So these are some of the characteristics of normal urine. The color is usually straw color or amber. The clarity um, is transparent or only slightly cloudy. The odor is faintly like ammonia. Specific gravity, the normal range is 1.012 to 1.030. Usually your specific gravity is more concentrated in the morning, especially if it's your first void and you haven't drunk a lot of water, okay? So your specific gravity will be up. And your pH slightly acidic, ranging from 5.5 to 7.5. Now this is the number figure for urine not the pH for blood, which pH for blood is 7.35 to 
7.45, okay? Always be cautious when you're dealing with urine too. Wear gloves, always. And urea is um, without, and that's less than 100 mils of urine output in 24 hours, and we need how many meals an hour? 30. Got it. This urea, this urea, which is difficult, remember dysfunction, pain with. Pain for a difficult urination, maybe from infection or trauma. Incontinence is involuntary release of Uh, many renal function test results will remain within normal limits until renal function decreases 50% or more. <clears throat> Nocturia is when a person has to get up more than twice in the night to void. I think I missed it some early, but it's when they have to use the bathroom too much at night, okay? Oliguria is decreased urine output less than 400 mils in a 24-hour period. And poly means too many or too much, so it's excessive urination. Some common renal function tests include a renal concentration, a creatinine clearance, serum creatinine and BUN. The, your role as the nurse for obtaining these tests are to always do an on, uh, 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 ongoing patient assessment, make sure your patient is drinking, um, document any symptoms, burning, pain, nocturia, report changes in their intake, output, and then if you do have to get a sample, make sure that the sample is viable for the test, okay? <coughs> Cystitis, and this is on page 544 at the bottom, 544. And that, there's a chart also on page 544, 29. Box 29.1, just review those uh, so that you'll be familiar with those um, alterations and terms. But cystitis is an inflammation of the bladder, not the kidney, the bladder. It may be caused by irritation of highly concentrated urine, uh, bacteria, injury, or installation of an irritating substance. Symptoms include frequency, urgency, dysuria, burning, malaise, that's tiredness, foul smelling urine, or a slight temperature elevation. Bacteria that are um, most often responsible for cystitis uh, is just a patho pathogenic bacteria or if it's highly concentrated. And this cystitis is more common in the older <coughs> populations, especially in nursing home settings. 
So some, some urinary specimens, you've got your normal avoided specimen. You want to get that a specimen that's sent to the lab within five to 10 minutes. Uh, urine standing more than 15 minutes changes the characteristic of it, so we usually refrigerate it. So you can have a viable sample. Then you've got your midstream, which is your clean catch um, specimen. Then you can get a specimen from your indwelling catheter or sterile cath specimen. You can have a 24-hour urine specimen or strain specimen. And these are your collection devices. This, uh, here's a urinal. And then you've got your fracture pan here. This is a regular bed pan here. And then this is your uh, in toilet cap, so you can measure uh, urine output. And this is uh, this image is on page 545 in your textbook. Some abnormalities found in the urine. Once you get your specimen, what will you find? Okay. Glycosuria, and that is glucose in the urine. Proteinuria, and that's protein in the urine. Hema, blood. Hematuria in the urine, that's blood in the urine. Pyuria <coughs> is pus in the urine. Or ketonuria, which is ketones in the urine. Using diabetics, and they become ketotic. Some of the uh, uh, things that could be ordered test-wise or uh, imaging studies would be uh, ultrasound of the kidneys, uh, a CAT or MRI uh, sexual scans, intravenous uh, cystogram, and uh, if a person does have to have uh, a contrast dye to check their kidneys and they're on metformin, um, it should be at least held for 24 hours because it causes them to have a lactic acidosis or a lactic acid in their, uh, that forms in their uh, kidneys, which is a part of metabolic acidosis. <coughs> <coughs> and it is result in the balance of their pH levels. So assessment, what are you going to do? How are you going to assess your patient? The patient should be assessed for their usual um, pattern of elimination, the incidence of incontinence or frequent urination, <coughs> if they have any burning or you, uh, uh, when they uh, use the bathroom or any urgency, the time of day for elimination, and the total daily fluid intake and output. And documentations of these um, assessments are very important. The assessments that you, that you ask and you find will determine what types of tests may need to be ran. 
person may have to have a cystoscopy, which is an endoscopic exam of the bladder via the urethra. They may have to have a renal biopsy, and that's a, a procedure where they extract some of the kidney tissue for lab analysis. Or they may have to have a renal endoscopy where removal of some kidney stones per, uh, performed. <coughs> and then that endoscope, uh, endoscopic tube is used uh, with a small camera uh, to, light, to break up some of the stones. So question one, the urinary system is made up of which of the following structures? What's first? Kidneys, then the ureters, then the bladder, then the urethra. So what's the answer? One. You got it. If you can remember which way it goes, then you won't. All this two, two, three, and four won't trip you, okay? If you know what you know, you know it, right? All right. Erin's patient has been complaining of burning when she urinates. Her doctor or doctor ordered a urinalysis, which shows pyuria, pyuria. This result indicates what? Order. Pus, pyuria. All right. All right, so we're almost done. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about catheterization, advancing a urinary incontinence, the theory and the clinical practice of it. And I'm on page 553, and we'll be uh, going to 554, talking about the different types of urinary catheters. 553. To the right, you see that? Types of urinary catheters. Mm -hmm. We good? Yeah. All right. So catheter types, uh, we've got all these different types of catheters, okay? Some of them I've never even seen before. <laughs> and we have all of the different types of <coughs> specimen uh, that we could get that we had mentioned earlier, okay? So it is the nurse's role in caring for the patient with the catheter to make sure, and I was telling my, uh, my group, anything that's going in a patient, IV, NG2, oxygen, catheter, anything that's going in, you need to say something about it. And don't just say something about it. You need to describe if it's normal, if it's red. You need to describe how it looks, if it's the stuff that everything is intact. What's coming out of it, describe it, okay? So that's one of your roles uh, as the nurse to make sure, I don't care what's going in them, you need to say something about it. Because if it wasn't documented, it wasn't. Uh -huh. Even if they've got something applied, okay? They've got a dress in here, this here, talk about it. You come on your ship and they've got a bruise, they didn't have one the last time, you need to document. Document everything. 
Because if you did document it, guess who they gonna, the next nurse gonna say did it. You did it. And you have, you did too many ATIs, you did too many uh, uh, exams and clinicals and all this stuff to get tripped up because you forgot to write something down. Just get in the habit of anything, do I talk about that? Anything that's going in them, you need to say something about it. Right? Right. That's clear as mud. Say something about it. Okay? Uh, you're going to identify uh, any abnormals or any normals. You're just going to make sure you say something about it with your findings and teach your nurses to do that. You may be the nurse team lead. <coughs> teach your CNAs. You're not going to see some of these patients when uh, uh, they're in the bed and they're getting their bag when they turn them over and they're, uh, they've got pus coming out of their, uh, uh, around from their cabinet. Okay, when they go to clean them from front to back and then they get pulse. You need to make sure you communicate uh, to your um, team. You see anything abnormal, let me know. Come and get me, okay? And these are some of the common types of urinary catheters, single lumen, uh, you're straight. You're, I've never seen this malacope tip. Maybe there may be a nurse that has, but I haven't seen it. In my practice. And that's on this image is on page 554. And then, then here's a, a double lumen, which is what we use, is what's common. And then this is a, a also common a catheter that's also used, Alcock urinary catheter. This is the side laying position for catheterization for those that uh, have difficulty. Um, and that's using your elderly population. Sometimes they have maybe uh, have contracted <coughs> legs and hard to spread. So they uh, in that lithotomy position. So then they will do it side laying. This is a suprapubic catheter, and if you notice, it is um, right into the bladder. Now, I did have a student at one of my schools, I think Austin's, that he self-cathed himself in a, a lumen for, uh, and he was born with an anomaly, birth defect. So, he had to self-cath, and they do it, they just do self, they just take the catheter, put it in, they urinate in the toilet, flush it, and they do themselves. And that's a super pubic. Incontinence on page 568. Jumping. of incontinence and there's a table 29.4 uh, loss of normal bladder control body image disturbance increased risk for impaired skin integrity uh, incontinence may be temporary or permanent it may be corrected by surgery may be helped by performing 
uh, the cable exercises. And a patient may have to have an electromyography to evaluate their neurological function of, of urination if they're having difficulties. There's three types of incontinences. There's uh, urge, stress, or that overactive bladder. You see the little uh, commercial with the bladder? Uh, Pulling the lady, you tell them, come on, we gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. So that's what the overactive bladder is. Urinary diversion care on page 569 is necessary when the bladder is removed or bypassed. One or both of the ureters are implanted into the abdominal wall the bowel or a pouch uh, constructed for, from a piece of bowel. And the skin care depends on the type of diversion that that, um, that person may have. <clears throat> Documentation uh, when a patient is voiding normally, uh, voiding sufficiently, whether there is a problem, dysuria, uh, anuria, pyuria, whether the patient is continent, the amount of urine, any bladder irrigations, the presence of an indwelling catheter, or when it's removed. Um, I always document what was the color, if you found anything in it. I always document hydration status, eyebrows, <coughs> if there's difficulty. Some patients are reluctant to talk about their elimination, <coughs> depending on their uh, culture, the um, their privacy, or just their personal preference. <coughs> so question three, Brenda is making rounds on her post-operative patient. She noticed her patient's Foley has drained 90 meals in three hours. What statement is correct? Two. Right. How many are they supposed to have an hour? That's right. Three times three times. Okay. Aaron's patient will be going home with the catheter. <coughs> All of the following are true regarding a Foley catheter except four. Four. Except. So the balloon is usually inflated five to ten meals. Okay. It will actually say it on the catheter. It may have to be 16 French, 14 French, or whatever. But it'll say 14 FR, 5 meals. Uh-huh, and it'll say 10 meals. But the wrong answer is 15. You don't put 15 meals in um, a balloon to, after you insert the catheter. It's 5 to 10. Um, Foley catheter is the most common type of indwelling catheter. That's true. Uh, has two lumens. That's true. Right? It may also be used for superpubic uh, uh, drainage. That's when, when I was telling you that the young man, man did his catheterization that way. So that's true. So what? How, the best way to find that answer is to is to find the right one. Say, okay, well I know it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. 
So that leaves you with that because you didn't, you didn't even know the number, did you? See? So that's how you get your answer. Bruce's patient needs a condom catheter. A condom catheter. You know what a condom is, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a condom catheter. This type of catheter is used when what? Or. Is it used for a female who's incontinent? No. How would a female use it? So can you get rid of three? Yes. So what about a man or a woman? No. So would you get rid of what? <coughs> Two. Two and three. You can get rid of that one, right? Okay, so the patient cannot void. That doesn't even make any sense. No. All right, for that kind, so it's for if the answer um, is um, four. Any questions? All right, well, when you get your study guide, hopefully the material that I cover will be in it, and you will do well on this part. You've got two chapters, respiratory and uh, urinary, all right? So take a 10-minute break and that's What's going to be, what kind of heart rate are they going to have? What kind of manifestations are they going to have? You're going to have bulging eyes. Okay. I would say increased heart rate, like tachycardia. Okay. So this is the one, remember, when I was lecturing, I said, you're going to give them a medication. It's the beta, beta blocker agent. Yep. And what are you going to do? Uh, you're going to assess the pulse. Yep. What happened? You're going to assess the pulse. So if you see a question about Graves' disease and they're taking a beta blocker, what are you going to pick? Assess pulse must be above 16. Assess pulse. We're not going to pick anything else, right? Right. Not even if we really, really think it's right, we're going to pick assess pulse. I make no promises. I make no promises you'll pass this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about uh, CTs and MRIs. What did I tell y'all to remember about that? Allergic to shellfish? Ask their allergies. What are we looking for? Allergic to shellfish? Um, so, what I was going to say, um, <laughs> with insulin, I'm going to tell y'all something. I want you to put it in your brain and I want you to lock it there because you're going to see it again next term in my class the only the only insulin that you can give iv is what what kind of insulin would it be novolog nope no i think it's the regular 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 insulin is the only insulin that you can give to patients that um, have that are having insulin IV giving intravenously intravenously you need to know about diabetic foot care that might be a select all that applies who knows I mean who knows is that gonna be a two or a three or um, I don't remember which one it was 
Um, you need to know signs and symptoms of diabetic neuropathy. And you need to know signs and symptoms of DKA. Now, there was one thing I said, and nobody, I mean, there was one, when I was talking about DKA, and nobody said anything, and I forgot to mention it. What's a classic sign of DKA? Fruity breath. And Fruity breath. Fruity breath. Fruity breath. That's right. Um, you need to know your three P's of diabetic of diabetes. What are they? Somebody tell me right now. Polydipsy, polyuria, polyuria, and polyphagia. Yeah. Super hungry. Hi there, sweetie. Way better. <laughs> um, okay. Your three P's. Okay. Um, so how do we want to control diabetes? What's our number one way? Diet, diet, diet and exercise. Diet and what? Diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. How do you draw up insulin? Clear to cloudy. Okay. Clear to cloudy, but tell me, be more specific. Have a second nurse check it. You can have a second nurse check it. Call Regular critical drug. And long acting. Long acting and short acting. Mm-mm. No. Gonna draw up your short acting first. And then your long acting. And you can always remember that, Kathleen, because if you get some of your short acting in your long acting, it's not gonna be that big of a deal. But if you get some of your long acting in your short acting, that could be a problem. Okay. So just always remember. Long acting to short acting. The only medication, the only medication that is on here that you need to know is regular insulin. Okay? Regular insulin. So, um, <coughs> again, I have on here how should we advise uh, patients who are playing sports? They need to eat a snack, need to eat more. If you see something like that on the test, you need to pick the choice that says they need to eat more, or they need to have a snack before they start playing or something like that. Um, what are manifestations of hyperthyroidism? Weight loss. Yes, they, they have weight loss. Um, again, this is just, you know, was that good. hyperthyroidism or hypo? Hyper, hyper. Fatigue and depression? They can, yeah. Lacey. Um, so where's the goiter located? Is it going to be on the anterior or the posterior of the neck? Anterior. Anterior. Okay. Um, so it's going to be on the anterior. Um, what's it? What uh, deficiency causes it? Iodine. Iodine deficiency. Um, what tests and procedures are done to identify SIADH? Repeat, please. 
Um, what tests and procedures are done to identify SIADH? Is it calcium and phosphorus? The bun, the urine, and serum. I'm sorry, I missed that, Amanda. Creatinine. It's your osmolarities. BUN, hemoglobin. It's your osmolarities, your um, urine osmolarity, urine specific gravity, things like that. Fasting, I missed that question. Uh, what tests and procedures are done to identify SIADH, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone? That's what SIADH is. I have on here, and I can't remember why I put it, <laughs> but I have DI, which is diabetes insipidus, uh, no vasopressin, and I don't know if it's because it's if it's the answer. You don't have to know like any really specifics about vasopressin, like what it does or anything, but you just might want to know that it treats DI, diabetes and syphilis. <clears throat> Um, hypophosectomies. Did y'all like that? Um, you want to know about the care. So that's where, you know, what position are they going to be in when they come out? What are you not going to let them do? Specifically, what are you not going to let them do? Do not let them bend forward. Do not let them blow their nose. Do not cough. Do or not let Do not sneeze. Yes. Those are all correct. That is all correct. But do not let them blow their nose. Are y'all picking up on this? And it's high fowlers, right? Yes, and can we just compliment how well you Thank you. Well, you say that they can't, you know, no sneezing, no coughing, like, Sneezing is kind of like a natural thing. Like, if you got to sneeze, you got to sneeze. So, like, what if they do sneeze? Um, make sure they do it with their mouth open. If, like, they just have to sneeze. Like, if they can't help it, you want to make sure that they do it with their mouth open. Do you know why? Well, all the pressure goes out of their mouth instead of out their nose. Yeah. It's for pressure. Um, oh, here's a good one to see if y'all have studied your um, chapter, your um, chapter, whatever it is, the first chapter we have. Um, <clears throat> what gland produces ACCH? Is it the posterior pituitary? I was just looking for pituitary gland, but that's good. Can I get that again? Our internet skipped over here. Um, what gland produces ACTH? 
Cushing's disease. What's our priority? Safety, airway. Uh, you're guessing. Wait. I, I did not mention any of that tonight. Wait. Except, yeah. for, sure they're except for thyroidectomies. Wait, who said that? <laughs> yes, weight is priority. You know, which lab will be decreased in Graves' disease? THS. TSH. Yeah, TSH. Okay, removal of the pituitary gland. How do we do it? I told y'all. Through the through the nose or or the junction of the lips and the <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, which gland is the master gland? Pituitary. Is that the pituitary? The pituitary gland. What drug, um, which insulin is a long-acting insulin? Lantus. Lantus. How does diabetes mellitus dispose, predispose a patient for cardiovascular disease? What's it do? It causes that atherosclerosis. It causes thickening of the membranes and the vessels. So it causes, like Elizabeth was saying, it causes atherosclerosis. You need to know your um, levels for your A1C. 6.5 or below. Mm -hmm. There's at least two questions on there about that. Why do we want patients to rotate injection sites? For absorption. For absorption. What's our primary goal for diabetic diet? Normal blood sugar. We want them to have normal blood sugar. We want them to have adequate nutrition. We want them to have weight control. Can you say that story again? Um, our primary goals for diabetic diet is um, adequate nutrition, weight control, 
and good blood glucose levels. you do if you have a patient who has signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia check their sugar give them some candy give them some orange juice who said what who said that it was me very good you're gonna give them some orange juice What if they can't drink? Glucagon. What if you're not in the hospital? There's sugar in your What? <laughs> well, what has been done that I've seen is just um, not probably, I don't know if it's right, but probably putting like a pack of sugar and kind of rubbing their gums and stuff. Glucotabs, the tabs? But yeah, but. Cindy's right. Like if you, you know, most people don't have gluc tabs and glucagon. So like if you're out somewhere and some you suspect somebody has low blood glucose, you can do like honey or jelly underneath their tongue. <clears throat> like if they can't swallow, like to give them juice or something, you can give them that because it'll dissolve. And if you give it under your tongue, it goes real quickly. So it gets into their system real, real fast because absorption really quick underneath the tongue. So you want to know signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia because there might, and because there might be a question on there where you have to give somebody some orange juice, right? But you won't know to pick it if you don't know if they're having those signs and symptoms. Um, which gland is both an endocrine gland and an extra, 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 exocrine gland? I think it's the spleen, isn't it? Nope. No, it's that other one. What other one? There's lots is of Is it the liver? Nope. No, Diane. It's the pancreas. I was getting to that one, yeah. Yep. Have you all even done your study, God? I printed it. Nope. Sure haven't. Um, which gland secretes uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine? Is it the adrenal gland? It's adrenal medulla. Yep. Boom. Um, so where in the body are your uh, uh, mineral corticosteroids and glucocorticosteroids produced? So, 
that would be. Can you repeat that again? Where in the body are your mineral corticosteroids and glucocorticosteroids produced? Adrenal. Oh, no, I think I'm wrong. I ain't going to say it. Say it. Adrenal gland? The adrenal gland. I was yep. going to say, yeah. See, I should have said it. I was right. <laughs> yep. So which hormone acts on the bone to release calcium into the blood? Is it calcitonin? Nope. No. I'm on a hush. <laughs> I think it's on them growth ones, but. Nope. What was the question again? Which hormone acts on bones to release calcium into the blood? Nobody knows. Parathormone? Parathormone. Yep, parathormone. That's P A R A. T-H-O-R-M-O-N-E. Which gland secretes androgenic hormones? Your adrenal cortex. What is it? Androgenic hormones. Where is it secreted from? The adrenal cortex. The adrenal cortex. Which actual structural unit secretes insulin? Beta cell? The beta cells. Beta cells. Now, I just gave y'all about 31 questions that are going to be on your exam. Just about word for word. Just about word for word. was pepperoni and sausage pizza. Um, so, if I were you, I would study what I just told you. I would read my chapter because I've got about 31 questions and I don't have, I need some more questions to add. So, um, I would read my chapters. I would read my ATI book. I would do those questions. I would know those questions in my ATI book, like the back of my hand, because I will not be giving a retake for this exam. I don't care if everybody makes a two on it. Oh God. You're gonna have you're gonna have to study. Come on, I was gonna at least aim for a six. Hmm. 
Some of y'all did do it. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody did a six on the last test. We all going to pass. Y'all got to be positive. Stay positive. We all going to pass. You're all going to pass. Um, if you have questions, you need to email me. If you don't understand something, you need to email me. Do y'all really want me to post this lecture? Yeah. It really wasn't a good one. Yes, because I can't write as fast as you were talking. It don't have to be perfect. It gives me something to listen to, to and from work.